Welcome. I'm Christina Michelle, inviting you to join me for Culture Rich Conversations, an ongoing feature of Juno Afternoon. Today, I'm sitting down with a special guest who I've known since childhood. He's an NBA All-Star, Olympic gold medalist, a recent Duke University graduate, father of four, brother to our producer, Natasha, and an accomplished author as well. He needs no introduction, but it is an honor to welcome my guest and friend, Carlos Boozer Jr. Over the next hour, Carlos will share about his life journey after growing up in Juneau, his upcoming book, Every Shot Counts, and much more. From KTOO in Juneau, this is Culture Rich Conversations. Culture Rich Conversations is made possible by a grant from the Social Justice Fund Grant Program of the Alaska Community Foundation. Culture Rich Conversations on Juno Afternoon is sponsored in part by Mark Stofa and Sarah Hannon of the Alaska Wild Salmon Company, delivering fresh salmon to Juno home since 2006. Learn more at goodsalmon.com or 907-321-4997. The Black Awareness Association would like to take a moment to recognize that culture-rich conversations is broadcast from Flinket Ani. We acknowledge those families who made use of this land and waterways for thousands of years and still cherish it as an important part of their way of life for today and future generations. Gunalshish, thank you. You're listening to Culture Rich. Culture Rich. Welcome to Culture Rich Conversations. I'm Christina Michelle. Today, I'm excited to welcome Carlos Boozer Jr. He's joining me today via Zoom, and we're talking about everything from growing up in Juno to living his dream and finding success in the NBA and beyond. I'm also really excited to talk about his upcoming book entitled Every Shot Counts, A Memoir of Resilience. Welcome, Carlos. Thank you so much for being here today. Uh, thank you for that. Christina, first of all, you've been my big sis since I can remember. <laughs> so good to be on the show. Shout out to Tosh for getting it done. Tosh, we love you. And I'm um, happy to be here. Oh, my gosh. Okay. So I'm just glad that you, like, yeah, just jumped right into that because I have just been, like, bursting since I found out we were going to do this interview. And I didn't want to, like, come on the air like, ah, it's Carlos. Like, he's my little brother. He's the homie. He's, you know, like, I, you know, I'm trying to, I'm trying to keep it, you know. Bring it down a little bit. But yes, I'm super excited that you're here, too. And um, thank you. So 
Um, many of our listeners know you because they've grown up with you or they've followed your career since JDHS days. Um, and I can introduce you by all of your accomplishments, but I would love for you to introduce yourself the way that you want to be introduced and known. What do you want us to know about who you are right here, right now? Thank you for that. I, I mean, for me, obviously, you know, I had a had a, a lot of fun playing basketball since I was like four years old. Uh, a lot of listeners here kind of watched me grow up. You guys, you and Natasha came to almost every game. <laughs> I appreciate all the support, but, you know, it took a village, man. Like I, I was very lucky and fortunate to have, you know, great family first and then great friends like yourself who also became family and then great coaches and, and teammates and teachers. And, you know, it took a village. And I think the biggest thing for me was I didn't give up. You know, I think anytime you have a goal, no matter what it is, you're going to run into roadblocks. I ran into a lot of roadblocks, but I didn't let those stop me. I just kind of let it, you know, fuel my fire and my desire to get where I wanted to go. Um, so coming from Juneau, a beautiful, beautiful town that we all grew up in. I feel very fortunate to be able to grow up there and, and be safe with, you know, I, I knew everybody's dog name in my neighborhood, so to speak. You know, it was one of those, one, it was one of those towns that we we knew everybody. Everybody took a second to get to know one another and I feel fortunate to grow up in that environment and not like a fast paced environment um, that I've traveled many places to. But so I want to say that first, very fortunate to grow up in Juneau, Alaska, always call that home. Um, But now now I'm, you know, I'm about to turn 42 in November, father of four. I got three boys uh, in high school, one that's going to graduate after 2024 and then twins that will graduate in 25. And then my daughter, who just turned four just paints all over the house and, <laughs> and is in the house as, as he's the only woman up in here. So very fortunate um, uh, to, to, to be a father. I think right now that's, that's my only goal is to be a great dad, pass everything on that I, that I learned along my journey to my kids, make it a little easier for them. Uh, hopefully they have an easier road than we had, but um, that, that's my whole thing. I, you know, I'm the kind of dad that shows up to everything. And so my entire focus is just being the best parent I could be. So let's back up a little bit. I think a lot of people assume that because you grew up here, you were born here. Is that true? No, I wasn't born here. My my dad was in the military. So me and actually Natasha were born in Schaffernburg, Germany. It's like West Germany. Mm-hmm. And then our family uh, is really from D.C. So grandparents are from D.C. and Maryland area. So after we were born up there and spent a couple of years up there, we went home to D.C. for a very short period of time, a few years. And then we ended up moving up to Juno, so we relocated to Juno, and uh, and we you know, we we made roots. We planted roots. You know, uh, my my younger brother came up there from Baltimore with us. Charles, and a lot of you guys know him as well. Nikisha and Natanya were actually born and raised in Juno, Alaska. A lot of y'all know him, know them too. Um, and spent the better part of my my childhood up in Juno, Alaska. So do you remember what your first impression of of Juno was? Yeah, I mean, I was like, where are the black people at? You know, I mean, <laughs> you know we come from Valid Washington, question. D.C. We're still asking that yeah. question. <laughs> yeah, coming from Washington, D.C., that's really all we saw. And then going to Alaska, it was a lot of Native American brothers and sisters and then, you know, a, a lot of uh, Caucasians. And that, and that was great, too. But. We were so used to seeing um, people that look like us. And this is Bloomy. Say hi, baby. Say hi. Oh, hi, hi, Bloom. Natasha right there? Mm-hmm. Yeah. She came to hang out. Um, <laughs> but, you know, one of those fortunate things where, 
it opened my eyes to new new possibilities to making new friends in different races and um because i was used to just being around people that look like me and then i came to a place like juno where there's a, a vast um difference in, in 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 the demographics so for me it was one of those things that opened my eyes you know i'm coming from the inner city to going to fishing and going hiking and going mm. camping and skiing, snowboarding and living more of an outdoor life where you're out you want to be outside and enjoy nature you know we didn't have nature in dc but in juno we got every bit of nature that we wanted right. and to be honest for, for me personally and I, I could speak for myself is that was the best thing that could have happened to me, you know, getting a chance to be well-rounded, um, get outside of my comfort zone and make friends in different race groups and get a chance to enjoy different cultures and um, get a chance to enjoy different kind of food. Go, fi- I never went fishing before until mm-hmm. I came to Juno. Never went camping. Went to, you know, I went to Echo Ranch like eight years in a row. <laughs> you know, it was like one of the best experiences for me was getting a chance to get outside into nature and, and Juno, Juno gave me that. I love that. Can you describe two core memories about growing up in Juno? Yeah, I think one of them, one of my first core memories was when me and Natasha attended the, the Christian school right across from Fred Myers. I'm not sure if it's still there. Yeah. But it was, it was there when we were kids. And, you know, my, my mom and dad were really adamant about having a Christian background base. Um, in our life. So we were going to, I mean, we were at church Wednesday night, mm. Friday, night, Sunday night, Sunday morning. So we were at church a lot and I was very fortunate to have that. And it was one of those atmospheres where we're the new kids on the block, you know, and we, we come in, we don't look like nobody. We're different. We walk a little different. We dress a little different, you know, we vibe a little different. And, you know, Tasha was my best friend. So everything I was going through, whether I, you know, didn't understand some of the curriculum or if I'm trying to make friends and they were really trying to be friendly. I was running back and telling my big sis and she was like, you know, it's all good. Just give them time. And I'm going through the same thing in my grade because, as you, as you know, she's a year ahead of me and almost two years older than me. So, you know, she had wisdom I didn't have and she had patience that I definitely did not have. <laughs> and uh, so that's the first one, going to the Christian school and having that base of, of believing in God and knowing that there's a higher power that that's watching over us. Um, that's one of the first core memories. The second core memory um, honestly, was going fishing with my dad. You know, I, that's something I was not into <laughs> when I first got there. But my dad loved it, and I'll give you a, I'll give you guys a quick story. So, I might have been like ten, eleven, been in Juno for a couple of years at this point. It's like, I'm I'm asleep. Pops come into my room, and it's like, hey, Los. Oh, that's my nickname, by the way, Los. If you guys don't know, but he was, hey, Los, you want to go fishing? And I was like, what time is it? And he was like, four in the morning. I was like, four in the morning? No, I don't want to go fishing. <laughs> and he goes, guess what? You're going fishing. So, I mean, that was like one of my first memories. So I got up, went fishing with Pops. And he made a he made a um, a deal with my mom because he had fell asleep a couple of times driving to different places to go launch the boat into that if he was going to go fishing, he'd bring somebody with him. And I was that volunteer. So um, I think fishing, it just it's just different. And sometimes we catch, we catch stuff, and sometimes we just have great conversation, just not catching anything. Um and for me, it just it gave me that it gave me a chance to bond with my dad, doing something different um, that I wasn't used to. It gave me a love for the water. And I I live in Miami now, guys. A lot of that had to do with 
you know, growing up on the water, going fishing all the time, being on boats and and that kind of background that Juno gave me, you know, through my dad. Um, and so those are my two core memories. And I think, you know, going to the Christian school, having God as a foundation and going fishing with my pops, um, helping me fall in love with water and nature and, and that vibe. I love that. Can I share a core memory with you? Please. Okay. I don't know if you remember this, but um, uh, that whole church thing is true because like when we were sitting in church one day, I don't know if it was like my breath was funky or I don't know <laughs> what it was, but that time <laughs> when you were sitting behind me and you sprayed me with, I think you thought it was banaca and it was pepper spray. And you I'm cleared so out the entire sanctuary. <laughs> like, like. I'm so sorry about that. That was part of, like I said, Tasha was a lot more mature. I go into that category. I'm <laughs> yeah, Pastor Gary still remembers that like very clearly because I think he was the one preaching and all of a sudden everybody just started like gagging and coughing and like, yeah, church was over. <laughs> Oh my goodness. So God, so for our kid listeners out there, don't do that, okay? Don't do that. Don't do that. So can you um can you talk to us a little bit about like what it was like in middle school and high school? Like did you play sports then? Um like how early on did you realize that you really wanted to take basketball seriously? Like what was what was that journey like? Yeah, great question. I mean, I was playing, my dad put me in a bunch of stuff. I was playing basketball, baseball. I ran track, they kind of cross country. Um, was in almost everything that I could get into. Wasn't that good at hockey. So, I, you know, I wasn't good at skating on the ice. But um, so I was doing a lot of sports back then. And I would say middle school, I always had a huge love for basketball because my dad did it. You know, my dad played, he played in the old man's league up there. They, I saw them winning championships. And I was, you know, uh, we didn't have like every channel, but every channel that we watched that had sports on it always had Michael Jordan and the Bulls on it. Mm. So I fell love with basketball, watching MJ and the Bulls in the early '90s and dominating, and that was that inspired me and it made me want to, you know, pursue basketball. I was probably like 11 or 12, and then I took it serious. You know, I quit every other sport. Told my parents I really wanted to give it a shot and go for it, and you know, I tell people this at my basketball camps and anytime I get a chance to talk to parents and kids is that I was very fortunate to have parents that let me dream because I'm a dreamer. And think about a kid 12 years old in Juneau, Alaska, telling his parents, hey, I want to go to the NBA and be an NBA player. You know, I didn't have the parents that looked at me funny or gave me gave me an answer like, no, nah, son, you can't do that. They were like, if you take it serious, then we got your back and we'll help you get there. That was the response I got from my parents. And so I love that. You know, it made me believe that I could do it even more, even though I already had the belief in my heart that having that support, you know, talking to my big sis about it, and she had my back and, you know, she would babysit the kids sometimes. I had to go to basketball camps and, you know, my family really stepped up for me to, to really give it a shot. And I'm very fortunate to have a family that had my back. And so um, it was right around 12 and I started, you know, going to school like everybody else, but I would come home, knock my homework out, make sure it was, you know, all A's in my house. And then as soon as my parents got home from work around 536, we would bust out to Oak Bay uh, basketball courts that were outside behind Oak Bay Elementary School. And we, me and my dad would go at it for two hours, two and a half hours, and we'd come home and have dinner. And that was my routine since I was 12 years old, uh, pretty much all the way through high school. 
I was very fortunate to have Coach Houston, George Houston, Hall of Fame, George Houston, <laughs> one of my best friends and my high school coach. And he would let me use the gym some nights over there at JDHS. But um, a lot of times I was at Oak Bay Elementary School in the, in, in behind the building shooting hoops. So you practiced for hours every day. You think that... Yeah, almost every day. Oh my gosh, that's incredible. Um, do you think that in order to have gotten to where you did that you had to go that like you had to have that level of intensity and like passion for for the the sport yeah i think i mean one of the things that i've been able to to witness um on my journey i've met a lot of friends in different avenues and actresses and actors and different uh sports baseball football um business now that i'm in i'm in a lot of business stuff now one of the things that we all have in common is that we were a little, not even a little, I would say we were obsessed with mm. our, with our goal, mm-hmm. obsessed with our goal. Like I never got tired of working out. I never got tired of going to the gym. Um, I love the work part of it. I love the, the, the work ethic. You know, I was always trying to get better at something. Um, if I, if I, like say, for example, I had a game win or lose and I did something that I thought I could have did better that maybe didn't work in the game, I would obsess over trying to master it. And I would go to the court and I would go over and over and over. And, and my dad would be like, oh, it's time to go. And I'm like, not yet. I don't, I don't feel comfortable yet. I got I to gotta keep doing this, whether it's dribbling with my left hand or doing a reverse layup or shooting a three ball or shooting a free throw or whatever it could have been. I was obsessed with the work, obsessed with my goal, obsessed with the process. And I think the friends that I have that have have been successful in their walks of life, there's a there's a bit of obsession that goes along with you know having that dream. You gotta, I think the magic is in the work. Mm-hmm. I don't think you wake up and become a superstar. I don't think you wake up and become successful. You got to put the work into it. And I think the people who are okay with that and they surrender to that and they don't mind that, those people nine times out of ten usually become successful in whatever they're trying to do. Nice. I love that. So what would you say to um, to somebody who is really, really trying and let's say they are obsessed with their goal and they are putting in the work and they feel like they're not quite getting to where they want to be or they look like they look at somebody like you and they're like, you know, I'm, I want to follow that path, too, but it doesn't feel like it's going anywhere. Like, how would you how would you speak to them? Yeah, my message would be don't stop. You know, I think there's a lot of people who run into, like I said earlier. You know, on your journey, whatever you're trying to accomplish, you're going to run into some some walls. You're going to run into some adversity. And I think one of the best things about being a winner is that you don't quit. Mm-hmm. You know, you, you can you can lose. You can be tired. You can be fatigued. You can have tough days and be frustrated. You can be hurt. You can. There's all type of things that happen along your journey. But the one thing about winners is they never quit. And I think if you're if you're if you are going on a path and you are obsessed and you do love the work and it just hasn't happened for you, keep going. You know, I think also don't like I told you also, it, it took a village for me to make it. It wasn't like I did this by myself. Yeah. That's not true. I had a lot of help along the way. And I'm still getting help now. Now that I'm in business and I'm a father and I reach out to my parents for advice. I reach out to Tasha. We talk about parenthood all the time and you know, I reach out to my business partners to learn more about what I'm into as I'm into real estate and some different things. And, you know, these guys have been spent their whole life in real estate. They spent their whole life 
you know, being parents and, you know, or whatever the case may be. I'm the guy that's okay to say, pick up the phone and be like, hey, I need some help. Can you help me? So if you're on this path and you are putting the work in, but you feel like it's you're not quite reaching the level of success that you'd like to have, don't be afraid to pick up the phone and call somebody who you know could assist you or that is like-minded or has achieved what you want to achieve and get advice because I've done that my entire life, you know. Um, obviously it started with my in my household. You know, you know, Christina, you know the the real real. Like I was asking Tasha about girls and all time. I didn't know nothing about girls. <laughs> I asked my big sis about girls, right? So she was fooling me on that. And you know what I mean? And talking to coaches, players that I got to meet about, you know, where I should do basketball wise and what I should look for in a coach and what I should look for in a team. And so I was the guy that was okay with admitting that I don't know it. I don't know. I don't know it. I don't have the answer. Let me do some research and ask somebody who might have the answer. And so that would be my suggestion to somebody who's in that spot where they feel kind of stuck or they haven't got over the proverbial hump, so to speak where you're like you feel like you keep running into the same brick wall don't quit keep going and don't be afraid to ask for help i love that that is such good advice um can you tell us a little bit about um how you think that your experience of like you you really beautifully described the um growing up in juno uh, what that was like for you um can you tell us how that foundation supported the success that you have achieved today? Yeah, I mean, that's a great question. I, I came from humble beginnings. It wasn't like we was in Juneau, lived in the, in the biggest house on the block. You know, we lived in Greenwood Park. There was seven of us in a, in a three-bedroom. Then we, came, you know, mom and dad made a couple more dollars and we moved into a four-bedroom in Greenwood Park. Um, so we, we came <laughs> from humble beginnings. Like, we shared everything. We, man, we had leftovers for a week at a time sometimes. You know what I mean? Yeah. That's why I don't have leftovers now. You know what I mean? Like, <laughs> So I just, I think I came from humble beginnings. You know, my family dynamic was we grind. My mom and dad grinded. Mom and dad was working, you know, 15, 16 hour shifts doing whatever they could do to, to make ends meet, put food on the table. You know, I saw my sister's work ethics. She was an incredible student, as you know, great singer, just a great human being, had a beautiful heart. And I admired that. I, you know, I wasn't like, I had a temper growing up, like I had short fuse and I had to work through that, those issues and had childhood trauma from different things I had to work through as I got older. Um, but I was blessed to be around people who um, humbled me. Like I was, and I was one of those, one of those kids that I saw the good in people. And for those people who I thought were terrific around me, like Natasha, for example, I clung to her. You know, I, I asked for advice all the time. I made a lot of mistakes growing up and she would, you know, put me in my place. And I needed that because I really was immature. And then you just heard what she said. I was over here blowing out, not Tanaka. That shit was, that was like, you know, <laughs> oh, my bad. I mean, I'm grown, but at the same time, I made a lot of mistakes growing up. So at the same time, you got to have somebody in your corner that's going to give it to you real. And not people around you that's going to say, oh, yes, and be yes, yes, men or yes, girls. Like, have somebody in your corner that's going to tell you the truth. And I had that in my sister. And that's why she became my best friend at an early age and still one of my best friends to this day. So I think for me, the humble beginnings. And then when I ended up, you know, uh, getting some notoriety and becoming a little famous and, you know, going leveling up at every level, going to college and going to the NBA, 
um, money didn't change me. I'm the same guy because I was rooted in, in my in my um, character of who I was when I was growing up. You know, respect your elders. Say, you know, may I and can I um, be be respect like whoever the owner is and whoever's waiting your tables and the custodians. You treat everybody the same. That's right. It doesn't matter what you treat everybody the same. You know, there's there's a, there's a right and a wrong to everything, and we know right from wrong. You know, I think some people, well, I didn't know, you know, you know, right from wrong. And I think ultimately being a good human being is more important than anything monetary value has on this earth, whether that's cars, houses, money, your bank account. Are you a good human being? Like, how do you make other people feel when they're in your presence? It says a lot about who you who you are and who your character is. So I always kept that in mind, no matter what area I was in, no matter what level or whatever might be what I'm doing uh, profession wise is that I want to be a good human being. I want people to be like, man, I had a good time with, with, with Los and it wasn't because of, you know, uh, I'm in the NBA or I have a, a lot of money in my bank account It's because uh, I'm full of love and I try to share love with other people. Yeah. It comes across 100%. Thank you. If you're just joining us on Culture Rich Conversations, I'm Christina Michelle, and I'm here having a wonderful conversation with Carlos Boozer Jr. There's much more to come. We're just going to take a break and we'll be right back. Support for Juno Afternoon comes from Heritage Coffee Roasting Company, providing Juno with locally roasted coffee for over 40 years, with cafes and drive through locations throughout Juno. More at heritagecoffee.com. Welcome back to Culture Rich Conversations. I'm your host, Christina Michelle, and I am here having a conversation with Carlos Boozer Jr. Before we went to the break, we were talking about, um, Carlos, your time here in Juno growing up and some of your childhood experiences. And uh, you shared with us just, you know, some of your life philosophies and things that have helped you to become as accomplished as you are. And I kind of want to like circle back to high school real quick, because there is a question that I forgot to ask you um, about the freshman being the first freshman varsity player. Is that 
true because someone asked me about that and I was like, I don't know. I promise I will ask him, were you really the first freshman to ever make varsity at JDHS? No, I wasn't. Okay. Uh, my favorite my favorite player my freshman year at JDHS was a stud named Josh Lockhart. And he, Josh, was, was the first player at JDHS to be on the varsity team as a freshman. I mean, when I remember going to watch, going to play pickup games when I was like in eighth grade when I was at DZ and I would go up and he was so smooth. He did everything like so smooth. His jump shot was smooth. Layups were smooth. Like everything about him, I admire his work ethic. He would stay late. He'd come early. He just had a dope swag to him. And I'm like, man, I want to be like Josh. You know what I mean? Like that was like my goal was like to emulate him and try to be as good as he was. I thought he was the best player I had seen at that point when I was like, you know, 13 years old. And then when I got to high school at 14, uh, when Coach Houston, you know, put up the list of the guys after trials that made the team and I saw my name, I was like, yo, like, you know, like I was, I was running tired. I was running home to mom and dad. I was like telling my brother and my sister, I was going, I was telling everybody who would listen that I was on the team. And then for me, I was like, I got a chance to play with Josh because he was a senior when I was a freshman. And I was lucky, man. I, I had a, a bunch of great guys who kind of took me in, you know, uh, Josh Lockhart, obviously was our best player, but we had Robert Casperson, who's the head coach of the basketball team. Now we had David Johnson, who was like, he had the smoothest car. He had a black, <laughs> all black out 5.0 Mustang. I'm like, yo, what do you do? I want to do whatever you doing. He had the best car on campus. Um, in my opinion. And then uh, we had Chad Carey. That was, those were my four seniors. And I was lucky enough to to be schooled by them, for them to teach me and and give me a chance to play with them and teach me the ropes of, of how to be competitive and what work ethic really was like because they, them guys put the work in. And that's why they were studs at, at JDHS. And um, shout out to my seniors, man. They'll always be my seniors. Okay, so thank you for uh, dispelling that myth, giving us some clarity around that. Um, So after JDHS, you went to Duke. Okay, so what was that process like? How did you choose Duke University of all of all the schools you could have gone to? Yeah, great question. I mean, I was very lucky, fortunate to be being recruited by a ton of schools. Um, It seemed like everybody. And it's tough because as a 17 year old, um, you got to make a decision for what you're going to do next. And it seems like, oh, that's so easy and that's so glorious, but it's an important decision. Like what college you go to, what, you know, what part of the country you want to, you want to live in, because I'm leaving the nest for the first time, you know, meaning I'm leaving home. Um, I can't run to my sister, Natasha, who's, you know, up in Princeton area, up there in Jersey. I can't run to mom and dad for, you know, advice every time. I got to stand on my own two feet and sink or swim, right? And if I'm going through a tough day or if I'm going through a good day to be even keel and know that, you know, good times don't last. Um, and sometimes the good moments don't last that either. So you got to be able to be even keel and be humble. And as I'm going through the process, I'm talking to coaches, I'm talking to some of the players and I'll give you all a quick story. So one of the schools that I, I was in love with um, since I was like in the seventh grade, it was UCLA in California. Um, they had a rich history with John Wooden. They won a bunch of championships back in the seventies. The last championship they won was in 95 with the O'Bannon brothers. And that like left a huge imprint on me. And most of my, my travel team uh, teammates went to UCLA. So it was like, it was like the school that I really, really was always fond of. 
And I get to, I go on my official visit. The best player on their team was named Baron Davis. Stud player, big body point guard, played in the NBA for like 15 years. If you guys don't know who he is, go Google, go YouTube, Baron Davis highlights. He How was, you spell Baron? He was a B-A-R-O-N. Okay. And Davis is D-A-V-I-S. Just, just an incredible basketball player. Like one of the best basketball players I'd ever seen at that point. So I get to campus. They're giving me a tour. I go watch a basketball game. When the game is over, everybody goes back to their, their, their condos or their apartments or where they live at, their dorms, and they have a house party. You know, it's the weekend in college. And so I go back and I'm hanging out with these older, I'm 17, hanging out with 21-year-olds. They're all kicking it, whatever. And the next day I, I talked to BD, is what I call him, Baron Davis for short, BD. And he's like, look, he goes, this is the best player on the team and one of the best players in college basketball at the time. And he goes, Booze, listen, he's born and raised in LA. He goes, Booze, I can see how serious you are about hoops. And this ain't the place for you. Like if, if I had a chance to go to Duke, I would have went to Duke too, but I had to stay in LA and take care of my grandma. If you got a chance to be coached by Coach K, take it. Mm. And this this is coming from the best player on one of the best teams in college basketball. And so I'm listening to him. And I, again, I told you guys, like, it took a village. And sometimes you got to talk to people who have lived it. And Baron Davis was older than me, so he had lived college basketball for a couple years. He had became one of the best players in college basketball. And he's telling me that Coach K is the best fit for me. And so he has that. I mean, you think he would be trying to convince me to come to UCLA. And he was like, if I was going to stay, I would tell you to come. But I'm going to the NBA this year. I won't even get a chance to play with you in college. And if I was you, I would be go, go get coached by Coach K. And so as I'm making my decision, I talked to Kansas and Kentucky and St. John's. People don't even notice, but St. John's was a close call because it was an hour and a half away from Natasha where she was at in Jersey. And so I was really considering going to St. John's <laughs> until I took my visit to St. John's because it's in Jamaica, Queens. It's, it, at the time, it was like eight buildings. It was it was not really a campus. I'm like, this is not that. Tosh, I love you, but I can drive up to Jersey. <laughs> so, long story short, I uh, I did my you know my research. I talked to players. I, I had my interviews with the coaches, and I admired Coach K, and I'd watched him be so successful. And you know, I, I went down to Durham, and I went to Duke University, and then you know when I made that choice. My, you know, my parents left the choice up to me because I'm going to be the one waking up at six o'clock in the morning to go to practice. I'm going to be the one staying late. till two in the morning working on term papers. And you guys know how college is like you got to it's you can't nobody save you is you in there and you got to do your you got to do your readings. And as an athlete, it's even harder as a student athlete, because just because you play on the basketball team, don't let the professors give you less homework. Mm. You got to go to this all day and you got to be in that classroom all day. So it's a, it's a tiring thing. And, and my mom and dad were like, you got to make that choice for yourself because you're going to be the one that walks it, that walks that path. Well, and that's what I chose to do. Okay. So help us understand the process of going from Duke into being drafted into the NBA. And I don't, I'm not going to, I'm not going to probably get this right, but I believe you went to Utah and then Chicago, and then L.A. Is that right? Did I say Very close. close. Okay, all right. Tell us how it really Very went. Close. So I went to Duke for three years. Mm -hmm. um, 
and we were fortunate to win a championship. I had a squad, great team, won a championship our sophomore year. And we came back and tried to repeat. Didn't happen. And then, I, and then the draft comes in 2002. And I had worked out for teams that had picks between five and like 19. So like, you know, 14 teams I worked out for. And that was the 2002 was the first year that you could draft a player from Europe and keep them in Europe and not bring them to the NBA. So it wouldn't count against your salary cap as a team. So there was like 13 players from Europe drafted that year. And that bumped me to the second round, which I didn't even know any teams that were in the second round, really. because I didn't work out for any teams that far down on the list. Um, but the Cleveland Cavaliers actually drafted me 35th overall. And so I remember that night like it was yesterday. And I was, I was, I was hurt and I was bothered and I was, you know, upset because I thought I was, I, I deserved to be a first round pick. I had a great college career. I won a championship. I thought I was one of the better big men in the draft. And, you know, so like, you know, you go for an interview for a job and you get turned down. Most of the time this happens behind closed doors. When on the, on the NBA night, on draft night, it's in front of millions of people watching the draft. And so it's like getting turned down for job interviews in front of the nation, in front of the world. Mm. And so for me, it was a little embarrassing because I thought I deserved more, but that goes to me learning the lesson about entitlement early on in my life. Like I felt like I deserved something that maybe I hadn't earned mm. and I had a hard way. And so instead of me pouting and feeling like, Oh my God, everybody's against me. This again goes back to the earlier conversation about hitting roadblocks, you know, sink or swim. People usually quit when they don't have the, what they expect to happen for them. They usually give up. Nah, it fueled me like you wouldn't believe. Like I had a, a chip on my shoulder the size of Anchorage, Alaska. <laughs> I love you know that. I, mean? <laughs> I couldn't wait to go prove to everybody that that I belong. You know, I wanted to belong in the NBA and prove to people that I was worthy of being here. So you know, what I did, I you know, I wiped my tears. And the very next day, I got right in the lab. I got in the gym. I was working on my game. Um, I felt like Cleveland gave me an opportunity because a lot, remember, let me put it into perspective for some of, you, some of the listeners out here who, who may not know. So every year there's in the NBA, there's a draft and there's 60 spots that people get drafted. 60, 60 players get drafted every summer. And on NBA rosters, there's only 15 players on each roster. There's 30 teams in the NBA. So when you do the math, there's only 450 players in the NBA every season. Of those 450 players, each team can only keep 12 players active on the roster once the season starts. And so I was like, this is a blessing in disguise because a lot of people that put their name in the draft, you know, hundreds of thousands of people put the name in the NBA draft every year. They don't get, they don't hear their name get called at all. And so the fact that I got selected 35th overall was a blessing in disguise. So that means I have an opportunity. I wasn't going to waste it. So I, I literally got to Cleveland. I started putting time in the gym. I went to summer league, which is like a league that happens before the season starts. Killed summer league. They gave me a great contract, two years with a third-year option, which never happens for second-round picks because I played so well in summer league. And I won the starting job maybe like 15 games into my rookie season. I became a starter in the NBA. My rookie, I was going crazy. And it's all because <laughs> I, didn't, I didn't quit. I just, I, I looked at everything as an opportunity. And instead of me, you know, crying or feeling entitled or, 
um, feeling like, you know, boo-hoo, poor me. I was like, it's time to get to work. And that's, again, that goes back to my advice. Like, if things don't go the way you want them to go, but you have the passion, you have the desire, you have the obsession, you have the work ethic, don't quit. Just keep going, you know? And that's what I did. I kept going, and I, I think I had a pretty decent NBA career. I love that. Can you tell us, give us like a rose and a thorn for your NBA career? Like what was like the sweetest thing? And then what was the thing that maybe was like not so hot? Yeah, great, great question. So I would say one of the sweetest things. No, no, let me go with the thorn first. It's okay. always good to get the ugly <laughs> out the way first. Yeah, I mean, let me get the ugly out the way first. So, you know, obviously, like I said, I, I I won the starting spot early on in my in my rookie year. And so I'm pumped. I'm excited. But what I didn't tell you was when you win the starting job, that means you're playing against starters. That means you're playing against some of the best players on the planet. Got it. Right. So I get in the game. Game starts. I'm going up against Minnesota. And they got a guy on their team named Kevin Garnett. And, I, and he was like one of my idols. Like I, I idolized the way that he played the game with that much passion. He was like seven feet, um, jumps out the gym. And so I'm in the game and he's struggling. You know, he's like, he's not making that many shots. You know, he's having a hard time. And I'm like, okay, I got a shot. Like, you know, KG struggling right now. I'm about to get busy, <laughs> you know, whatever, whatever. And then, and then the other thing about KG was he's so psychological with his attack on you. It wasn't just his game on physical game on the court. He talked to you the whole game. <laughs> so when I'm over here thinking he's struggling, next thing you know, he goes, he goes, he, his nickname was the big ticket. He goes, ticket? This boy can't mess with you. <laughs> I mean, he said it so loud, like this boy can't mess with you. He said this, and not those words. This is a family show. He used some other words. Okay. I'm not going to use words. Thank you. But your imagination and whatever. So he's like, this boy can't mess with you. And he said it so loud. The whole arena, I thought, could hear him. And I'm like, dude, it's just, he's talking to me. And then he went off and went crazy. He had like 37 points, like 19 rebounds. My father was watching. Like, I was so (laughs) impressed. And that's the thorn. The thorn is when you work your butt off and you really want to be a starter in the NBA, Sometimes they're going to grant you because you earned it, what you worked so hard for. So I became a starter, but I was getting torched. You know, like my my first week in the NBA was like Chris Webber one night. He's like in the Hall of Famer. Kevin Garnett one night. He's a Hall of Famer. Dirk Nowitzki. He's a Hall of Famer. Rasheed Wallace. He's a Hall of like this. The list went crazy. Every every game. Carl Malone. These guys are like the best of the best in my position. And they're giving it to me every mm-hmm. night. I'm getting destroyed every night. That's the thorn. The rose is that it made me work even harder. I got back in the lab. I got back in the gym. I got in the weight room. I got some muscles with me now. I, I got my jump shot looking good. I got in the best shape of my life. And I made the all-star team. And for those that don't know, when you make there's there's only 24 all-stars every year. 12 in the West, 12 in the East. So I was one of 12 players in the Western Conference that made the All-Star team. Wow. And I was, it's like a moment where you be like, you're like, I belong. Like I, I work my butt off to be one of the best players in the world and I'm being recognized for my talent. So, you know, I think 
you know, that in, in the NBA, that was the rose and the thorn. But I, you know, I was able to also win a gold medal in 2008 and get a chance to represent my country, which as an athlete, you barely ever get a chance to do unless, you know, you listen in the army, right? So being able to, to represent the USA at the Olympics in Beijing, China in 2008 and win a gold medal, especially after we went in 2004 and we didn't win a gold medal, we got a chance to come back and redeem ourselves, so to speak. Um, that was probably the, one of the highlights of my career playing basketball, getting a chance to wear USA across my chest and, and, and win a gold medal for our country. That's awesome. I, I'm applauding here quietly because I wanted to <laughs> reverb in the microphone. Um, we're just so proud of you, Carlos. Honestly, like everybody listening, you know, all of your family, um, your hometown, like we, we are, um, we're honored. We're honored to know you Thank and honored you. that uh, that you called Juno home. Incredible Thank accomplishments. You. So let's talk about your book a little bit. Um, we've got about 10 minutes left. And I really want to make sure that we um, get a chance to understand like your process and the journey to writing your memoir. And of course, um, for you to share with us when it comes out and when we can get it. So, um, or where we can get it rather. So um, what led to your decision to write Every Shot Counts, which is a fire title, by the way? Thank you. <laughs> Thank you. Very <laughs> much. Well, I, I think for me, I was in a, a very reflective state um, in my life when I decided to start writing this book, you know, Tasha is obviously a, a published author and, and gave me an idea of, you know, I wanted to, to tell my story, you know, let people know things about me that I kept to myself and I'm very private. Um, I've, I've been able to uh, accomplish some incredible things. And a lot of people know about those. They don't know the, the inner stories that happen behind the scenes or the journey I went through, the hard work, the, the tears I had to wipe away, the blood. That I had to scrape away the the tough things that you like we have to look in the mirror and, and and decide you know what kind of man are you what kind of person are you like I wanted to dive into some personal moments some personal battles that I had throughout my journey to try to help someone else who may be going through a tough you know personal journey because you know you, you don't you don't go through life with no hiccups and and even though I've had a pretty awesome life you know there's been some hiccups and I wanted to, to touch on those and and in the hopes of trying to inspire up and somebody else that may be going through a tough time. So for me, you know, I talk about, you know, being born in Germany. I talk about being in DC. I talk about my family dynamic and, you know, going through Juneau, Alaska and that community who, who embraced me, you know, what you mentioned, I wasn't born and raised in Juneau, Alaska, but the entire community embraced me and my family. Like we, like we were born there. And that meant a lot to me. And I talk about that in my book because, you know, Juneau has an incredible sense of community. And they embraced, you know, I was very different. I looked different. I, my swag was different. I'm, I'm coming in the, in the school in that old 85 Dodge van. <laughs> and it was like nobody had ever heard of those rappers before. And I, that was me. I was coming in with the swag clothes, and, you know, and they embraced me and they loved me and I loved them back for that. And Not so to I mention, want to talk you about were always like 10 feet tall too. So <laughs> I'm towering over everybody. I'm a little awkward walking down the hallway. So. But the community really embraced me and my family. And I wanted to mention that in my book. So I talk about that. Um, obviously, I talk about some of the highlights as well and talk about being a father, being a parent, being a dad, and going through some divorces with two two incredible women who I love and care about to this day. 
best friends with both of them and we co-parent very beautifully. Uh, I just, I really wanted to share my story mm. in the hopes that it inspire some other people. What's the oh, biggest thing? Every, oh. shot counts. every shot counts. You can go on my Instagram, click the link in my bio. The book's about 29 bucks. Guys, I did not do the pricing. Publishing House did that. So I apologize if it's expensive. I'm not sure. First time doing this, but um, it's a great memoir. And I hope you guys read it. I hope you guys enjoy it. Yeah, no, you don't need to apologize. I'm sure it's worth every penny. We're looking forward to getting it. I know I am. Um, can you tell Thank us, you. like, what's the biggest thing that you want us as the readers to take away? I know you said you want us to be inspired. Um, is there anything else that we, you know, you want us to kind of read with an eye towards? Yeah, I would say, I would say kind of along the same lines of, um, next play, like something that coach K taught me when I was at Duke is next play and meaning, you know, basketball related to basketball. You know, if, if you got the ball in your hand, you turn the ball over. Um, and if you dwell on that turnover or that mistake in the game, it can be a domino effect and lead to other mistakes. Right. And so coach K was always like, you know, next play. If you make a mistake on that end of the court, make up for it on the other end of the court, you know, move on, like think ahead, pick yourself back up. Cause you know, a lot of times we beat ourselves up because we're trying to be perfectionists, right? We want to be perfect in our attempt at whatever we're trying to do. And, and sometimes we, we fall short of that. Right. And so if you dwell on the fact that you made a mistake, you're probably not going to have too much success. And I, and that, and that transpired for me in life, you know, making a mistake here or, or having a turnover there, you know, getting divorced, having to pick myself back up and be like, okay, you know, there's other ways to have a great relationship with the mother of my children, or there's other ways instead of just, you know, because society teaches us sometimes. So when something goes wrong, you just, you know, like, for example, you get divorced and you're supposed to hate the other person. Like I didn't just love them for 10 years. Right. So I, I, I think for me, being able to apply, moving on to the next thing, Meaning like in my book, I tell stories and I give examples of being knocked down and trying and having to get myself back up. And I think that's the that's the biggest message of my book is, you know, again, hitting a brick wall in life or hitting a brick wall in my profession and having the courage to stand back up and do what was right. And I think that's the most important thing I want to get across to people like you can get knocked down, but you don't have to stay down. Staying down is a choice. And so I was a guy that got knocked down a few times and I chose to get back up. Okay. So can I share your Instagram? Yeah, absolutely. Okay. So it's Mr. C Booz, C-B-O-O-Z. And the link is in the bio on your Instagram. Absolutely. Okay. Thank you very much. All right. We are super excited. So I have one more question to ask and you get to tell me which one it's going to be by choosing a number between one and eight. Uh, five. Five. Okay. So as we finish up here, this is a getting to know you question. What is your hidden talent? We know about all the things you tell us about, but what's a hidden talent we don't know about? Um, Let me think. I love to travel. <laughs> I have an incredible palate of, of food. I love to eat. I can tell you what's in a recipe, but I like to doodle. You know, I wouldn't say draw. Because I'm not the best drawer. I ain't no Picasso. My daughter's also a really good drawer, but I, I like to doodle. You know, I'll doodle faces and pictures and places and places I've been or experiences I had. 
I have a little notebook that I do in there from time to time. And um, I haven't come out with it yet. Can't buy any of them. It's just personal use. But I like to doodle a little bit. And I, I used to be in class. I mean, listen, I'm not telling kids to do this. <laughs> but sometimes I had a little ADD and I'd be in class doodling. And I just started making a, a notebook of it. So I doodle a little bit. Awesome. Well, Carlos, thank you again for being with us today. It has been an absolute pleasure. Is there anything you want to share uh, that we didn't touch on before we close out? I just, I love y'all. I appreciate y'all. Christina, you've been like a big sister to me since I can remember. Natasha behind the studio, love you to death. Had a great time seeing you in Vegas the other day. And I just love my community. I love Juno. Appreciate KTOO for doing this. I'll be on anytime you want, every week if you want, whatever y'all want. <laughs> Anything I can do to help. I love, I love Juno, Alaska so much. It's, it's, it's home. All right. Well, we'll have to have you back after your book comes out and maybe we can uh, talk a little bit about like some ex- excerpts from it and um, just kind of build on that. Looking forward to it. Absolutely. All right. Cool. Let's do it. All right. This is Christina Michelle. This has been Culture Rich Conversations, and we will be right back. Hanson Gress, Ka eat with the shoe ye, where Kashuk are ye tin. Jin cut ka kay jin talk, and a kaya ha on a kuk, gunish cheese. Welcome back to Culture Rich Conversations. Today in Black History, we celebrate author and educator Anna Julia Haywood Cooper, who was born on August 10th, 1858. Anna was the fourth Black woman in the world to earn a PhD. She earned her doctorate in history back in 1925 from the Sorbonne in Paris upon defending her dissertation entitled The Attitude of France on the Question of Slavery between 1789 and 1848. Anna never shied away from addressing critical issues around gender equality through her conversations, speeches, and writings. In a time when it was not only unpopular, but even dangerous to do so. Miss Cooper stood unafraid and never let anyone silence her. We honor her and all she did for the Black community and for Black culture. We appreciate you for listening today, and we look forward to hearing any feedback you have. Our email address is junobaa at gmail.com. You can also find us on Facebook by searching BAA Juno. And our mailing address is PO Box 33734. Juno, Alaska, 99803. Today's show has been produced by Natasha Boozer. This this concludes the end of our show. Thank you for being here. We'll be back next week. And until then, may your life be blessed and flow with ease. I'm Christine.
Culture Rich Conversations is made possible by a grant from the Social Justice Fund Grant Program of the Alaska Community Foundation. Culture Rich Conversations on Juno Afternoon is sponsored in part by Mark Stofa and Sarah Hannon of the Alaska Wild Salmon Company, delivering fresh salmon to Juno home since 2006. Learn more at goodsalmon.com or 907-321-4997. You're listening to Culture Rich. Culture Rich. Thank you.